News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's have a little chat with our Raji Sohal this morning. We are talking about reviews. Now, Raji, when you're looking to buy something on the internet, do you take the reviews seriously? There's one kind of review that I will take more seriously, and that's a restaurant review and on a specific site. So when I'm on Yelp, and I'm on Yelp a lot, even though during the pandemic and post, I haven't been going to restaurants, I still miss the experience. So I comb Yelp for restaurants that I hope to go to when I feel more safe about being inside and dining. But that's because, Simi, I trust those reviews because there are way fewer fake reviews on it. When I find myself in a marketplace like uh, Amazon looking at all those online storefronts, I have no idea what I'm looking at. I don't know what I can trust. Uh, the reviews seem all fake to me, to be honest. So true. So they, they, It's just the way that they're worded, right? There's something yeah. just strange and not unique about some of them. Yeah. And it used to be like super obvious when it was a fake review. Uh, the grammar would be very strange. Uh, it would be obvious that sometimes it was not in that person's native language. Um, and then you'd see the repetition of sentences and things like that. So those were very obvious. And then Amazon, uh, their AI got really good at weeding those out. But their AI can't pick up ones that are reviews that are just genuine and people who uh, have written them have been paid uh, by the various marketplaces online in order to write them. This whole problem with paid reviews for fake reviews is huge on Amazon. It's such a problem that Amazon has just filed a suit against the administrators of 10 thousand Facebook groups that coordinate all these uh, goods for buyers willing to post fake product reviews. And they've done this before. They've gone after Facebook before for this um, with some success, but it's it, the fake reviews thing. It really dominates certain product categories more than others. So including like Bluetooth headphones and health supplements. Those are two categories oh, where yes. fake reviews are abound. I actually did find myself looking for um, vitamins recently on Amazon and I just gave up after 20 minutes of, Raji, I think, reading why would exclusively you buy fake vitamins reviews. on Amazon. <laughs> Oh, just for the uh, sheer, because, you know, I don't like Amazon and I don't like buying stuff on Amazon at all. But I went to the shelves of my local store and found everything was out of stock. Uh, so I was like, oh, shoot, I do have to go on Amazon. I'm very skeptical as well. Like I always joke about our Amazon cart is hilarious to look at because all of our family members share one Amazon account. And so oh, every, wow. everybody just puts stuff in there to look at later. Like it's not, we're not going to buy it, but it's like, oh, I saw this. I'll put it in there and then I can maybe take a better look at it. But it's just like such a hodgepodge of things in there. But finding something I think that is has an accurate review on it is incredibly challenging because it feels like everything has like a four or five star review. And you're thinking, well, how is that possible? How does everybody buy this product and everybody <laughs> is giving it a good review? I don't understand. 
Yeah. And whereas before I used to check, I used to comb all the blogs for various stuff. For example, if I was getting anything tech oriented, I would go to a blog, I'd go to the, uh, multiple blogs and see what the tech bloggers are saying about it. But blogs are a thing of the past now. And instead, what you have in their place is people's social media posts on it, which are always sponsored. Right. And then it's like, okay, now how do I how do I actually find out how people feel about these products? I don't know. That's how do you do it then? So it sounds like do you review? If I you buy a product. No, I don't see. I do, <laughs> but of course, you know, I give way too much feedback uh, in general. So <laughs> I am always, if I review something and it's good or bad, I will make a post on Here's it. Here's my problem though with giving reviews, and this is just a me thing. Um, and that is just, they always want so much information from me. And I understand that because they want to verify the review, right? They want to make sure it is a genuine thing and you actually bought that. But I just I just get so wary of putting in so much information about myself just to put this review online. Fair enough. So I have a fake Yelp uh, name that I use. All of my opinions on Yelp are like, they are my authentic opinions. That's how I actually feel about something. But it's not under my name, obviously. Uh, and yet I get regular messages from people trying to find out if it's a bot account or if it's a legitimate one, um, basically trying to find out if they can trust my opinion, which I find is really interesting. See, this is a lot more information, I think. And that, and again, it's that's why I can't seem to find anything legit out there. It's often these days you're taking a leap of faith if you're going to buy something online because you're thinking, well, I'm just going to find out for myself, right? Yeah, which is a good part of the reason why I don't buy stuff online. I really miss the days of being able to handle everything in my hands, look at it and assess, okay, is this what I want or, or not? In fact, some of the reviews, the fake reviews are so good that they will and convincing and persuasive that they will take into account the thing that the consumer is thinking about. Like, are these headphones I'm going to buy? Are they actually going to fit nicely on my ears? And then the reviewer speaks to that, even though it's totally fake. Yes, but maybe you mused about it out loud and your Alexa heard you and then it tailored the review. <laughs> it tailored the review towards that because you had wondered about that. Possibly. See, I'm I always mean, thinking. The, isn't the technology all reading our minds anyway? There you go. I'm always thinking about this kind of stuff, Raji. Alison, thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. So we were just talking about this proposal that Green Party Councillor Adrian Carr is bringing forward to City of Vancouver councillors. And essentially, she's calling on the city to allocate up to a dollar for every resident towards a class action lawsuit against fossil fuel companies. Essentially, she wants the city to sign on to West Coast Environmental Law's Sue Big Oil campaign. So this is a motion that is going to council today, as a matter of fact. And she's asking or she's going to be asking her fellow councillors to direct staff to include in the draft of the operating budget for next year money that would be used for this proposed lawsuit. So we thought Let's find out. Our councillor is going to support this. Joining us now is Pete Fry, a fellow Vancouver City Councillor for the Green Party. Uh, Pete, thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. <clears throat> what do you think of Councillor Carr's idea? Um, well, I mean, this is this is a new motion. Um, it's certainly something that's been sort of picking up a bit of uh, steam since the campaign's been announced. Um, by West Coast Environmental Law, and I understand Councillor Carr is coming back with a bit of an amendment to this 
to actually focus it more on um, on following West Coast environmental laws lead, but holding that money in trust with the city of Vancouver. And just should this uh, class action lawsuit come to play, then uh, we would we would jump on board. Uh, certainly, we've seen that these kind of big class action lawsuits have yielded results in Europe. Uh, the Dutch courts awarded a, a, a pretty significant uh, order on behalf of municipalities there and um, and ordered the uh, Shell to actually cut their emissions. And of course, just last month, we saw $150 million um, class action settlement uh, against Purdue Pharma for the opioids uh, that they contribute to here in, in British Columbia. So that, that's not insignificant. And I think when we look at increasingly the cost of, of you know, climate change, which we assume to be caused mostly by, by um, fossil fuel and, and whether or not the courts agree with that, there would be, I think, an opportunity for us to uh, pay for some of the damaged infrastructure that we're seeing as a result of climate change. So here in Vancouver, obviously, you know, Kitts Pool washed out through King Tide, the seawall, uh, impacts of the heat dome, the loss of tree canopy due to to drought. There's, these are a lot of things that actually end up costing. And I and I, and I understand Councillor Carr is also going to be bringing forward some facts and figures from our staff that estimate um, it's currently costing us about fifty million dollars uh, to infrastructure. You know, and, and this is the, the range of things from obviously king tides, uh, storm surges, uh, increased rain runoff, and 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 heat domes and that kind of thing. And it's it is costing us as a city quite significantly. So there's an opportunity here to to recap some of those those impacts. Right. So that sounds like this is something that you would support. Yeah. I mean, I think with the amended direction, and I think what this does actually do is is really put us in a position to support it. It doesn't presuppose that we would necessarily support it. Of course, the budget would have to be decided uh, by the by the next council in the next term and, and probably in the fall. So uh, I think as this, but it, it sort of sends a signal that we are open to it. And I mean, I think even just looking, you know, across our region and some of the, the, the monumental costs, um, you know, when we look over at Abbotsford and, and you know, Chilliwack Mission and some of the impacts that they... Oh, are you still there? We seem to have lost Councillor Fry there for a second. We will try to get him back right away because we want to continue the conversation that we are having about this issue. Now, this has to do with the idea of suing big oil to help defray or deal with the costs associated with climate change. This is a a lawsuit that West Coast Environmental Law is undertaking. It's part of their Sue Big Oil campaign. Now, Councillor Adrian Carr has come forward and said that she thinks this is something that the city of Vancouver should sign on to, uh, to get involved with, and she wants the city to allocate some money, about a dollar per resident, towards doing that. What we're trying to figure out is, what is the cost here for residents? What would the potential benefit be? And is this something that other councillors would support? As you heard Councillor Fry just saying there, that in, in there are aspects of this motion that he does support. It is going to council tonight, I should add. So that is going to be moving forward. The question is, do you think this is a good idea? Is this something that you feel 
dollars from the municipal level should be allocated to? You can let me know, simi at cknw.com. In the meantime, we have Councillor Fry back with us. Thank you very much for your patience on that. Uh, so let me just ask you this then. So if this coming forward tonight, you think with everything that's going on right now, and I know people are very concerned about you know their money and their finances and their budget, how do you think this is going to go over with the public? Yeah, I mean, certainly that was my big uh, initial thought when this this came to us. So I thought, hmm, is, is this the the best timing? You know, that that being said, um, I mean, and and I think you know, I'd like to see how the momentum on this class action suit moves forward by the time we're actually contemplating this in the budget. But the reality is, is that that the impacts of climate change are costing us way more than this, like significantly more. As I was alluding, about fifty million dollars a year. That's not insignificant. Even when you look just at the, the wear and tear on our road system and the potholes that results from, like, you know, the, the, the changing climate, we need to spend a lot more money to, to be more resilient to climate change. Uh, and if, in fact, the courts are going to find uh, fossil fuel companies liable for this, because we know that in the past um, they have successfully sued big corporations on, on, on class action suits, everything from asbestos to tobacco to, as I just alluded last month with the, the opioid companies, you know, the $150 million that they've, they've, um, that they've collected from, the, from, from Purdue Pharma to deal with the opioid overdoses, that's, that's not insignificant. Now, of course, the, the devil's in the details how that money gets spent and how it comes back to, to local governments and to offset the, those sort of costs. But if we see a similar opportunity with fossil fuels, I think we would be unwise not to pursue it. So, you know, at a dollar resident, it's, it is it isn't insignificant because I think that still comes to about seven hundred thousand um, dollars. But if there's an opportunity to recoup a lot more, then I think obviously it's money well spent. Is that the argument then that you would make to residents who say, "Listen, every dollar counts here." You think, "Listen, we can't afford not to spend this money." Again, I'm, I'm you know I think this contemplates it in the fall. So I'd, at that point, I'd like to see sort of where the the, the realistic this this notion of suing and coming up with class action, a lawsuit really just came about on the heels of the Purdue Pharma um, results. So this, this was announced in June, I think, and obviously Councilor Carr has jumped on it and produced a motion. So um, if, if it looks like by the time it comes for that budget consideration, because of course this contemplates it in the draft budget. So whether or not we approve it at that point, I think will be informed by, by how many folks are signing onto it. But I think, obviously sending a signal that Vancouver is interested to potentially sign on to a class action lawsuit to recoup the millions of dollars that climate change as a direct result of fossil fuel companies is costing us. And I think that might be something agreeable to, to pursue wow. again, offset to the actual cost that, that we're, we're downloading onto taxpayers right now to pay for essentially the negligence of fossil fuel companies. If they knowingly have contributed to climate change, that's, that's, ripping up our roads and seawalls and, and heat domes and the like, then I think, yeah. All right. Well, it's going to be an I interesting debate it. tonight. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. All right, Cindy. Appreciate Bye. that. That is Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councillor, Vancouver Green City Councillor, actually, talking about his fellow councillor, Adrian Carr's proposal coming forward to council tonight about potentially signing on to the West Coast Environmental Law's Sue Big Oil campaign. Now, if you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. It is going to be an interesting debate tonight, but as you heard Councillor Fry there, he said, yeah, there's there are possibilities here for supporting this, depending on you know the exact discussion of that amendment tonight. So we will be following 
following that. Up next, we turn our attention to municipal politics in Surrey. Another candidate jumping into that race for mayor and the promises are already starting and not everybody's happy about that. Next. This is Mornings with Simi. Getting a little crowded if you want to jump in the race there to become the mayor of Surrey. Yet another candidate coming in yesterday, that is Liberal MP Suk Dhaliwal, announcing that he will lead the United Surrey slate as their mayoral candidate. And boy, the promises are already starting, too, from the different parties. In this particular case, he said that he would freeze taxes if elected as mayor. And not everybody's happy about hearing that. Joining us now is Anita Haberman, President and CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Good morning, Anita. Good morning, Simi. Things are getting busy out your way when it comes to everybody wanting to be mayor, huh? Well, we are the city to watch in this upcoming city election, that's for sure. Okay, so how do you feel about some of these promises that are being thrown around here? Like, are are businesses happy about the idea of taxes being frozen? Well, certainly in the last uh, property tax cycle, uh, businesses face uh, the burden of taxation uh, in the past uh, three years, uh, you know, as high as 150% for some of our manufacturers. Uh, but, you know, revenue generated from property taxes is used and is needed to fund local projects uh, and fund fire departments, law enforcement, public recreation, education, arts and culture, other pieces to make city building progressive. And we are going to be the largest city in British Columbia very soon. And to say that you're going to freeze property taxes is not really fiscally responsible. Are you worried? This always seems to happen during election campaigns, Anita, right? Where promises are made and you wonder, is this really realistic for the city? Are you concerned that people might just respond to the idea that, yeah, let's freeze taxes? Well, I think everyone is looking at their bottom line in the face of great economic pressures, which uh, all of us are aware of. Uh, and uh, that might seem great for some, but uh, I urge uh, voting citizens to ensure that they're looking at the full party platform, not just vote on one issue. Uh, we need to ensure that we're also able to work uh, with local government uh, politicians as well. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, we uh, have to uh, agree to disagree on, on certain pieces. But, um, you know, uh, it's concerning uh, always during this uh, election cycle. There's lots of promises out there, but the whole platform needs to be looked at to ensure that we have a progressive future for Surrey. Let's talk about what you think in terms of the business perspective. What does the city of Surrey need? What would you like to see coming out of this next election? Well, I would like to see, and and we at the Surrey Board of Trade would like to see um, more um, more jewels uh, within our city to make our city a destination. More arts and culture investments. You know, we have great parks, great for families, but we need to make Surrey a destination, a performing arts center, um, you know, a, a stadium, you know, to bring in significant conferences, major hotels that uh, that, that bring in. Um, you know, these conventions, uh, we're a border city, we're part of the Cascadia Economic Corridor. The potential is significant, uh, but space to host events, uh, 
to have tourism assets is what is lacking. Uh, we need to ensure that we're investing in, uh, in, in you know, bringing in businesses within a national context and an international context, and that we're working with our regional government in order to do that. Um, you know, we're going to be the largest city uh, in British Columbia. We're growing by 1,200, 1,400 people a month. And our transportation infrastructure is also lacking. And we need um, new, vibrant partnerships. We just can't only rely on provincial, federal government partners to build uh, new transportation modes uh, to uh, really ensure our large geography within Surrey is connected. For example, SkyTrain, it can't be the only solution. So that's, saying, that's a big wish list there, Anita. Do you, do you think these are some of the issues that are getting talked about in this campaign? Well, I think the top two are, are around uh, the public safety infrastructure shift. Uh, that is really hot. And, uh, and of course, uh, as usual, transportation. Uh, taxes are number three, I would say, uh, when we, when we, uh, when we hear anecdotally. But, uh, every time the property tax cycle comes in, it's always number one, taxation number one for businesses because of these increasing bottom line pressures that businesses are facing. And yes, it's a long wish list, uh, but we have a lot to do in Surrey, and we need a local government that's going to really build uh, the brand of our city. And uh, and we do need a certain level of taxation in order to do that. Well, it's going to be an interesting campaign. Anita, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of discussion in the last couple of days about COVID-19 because we are seeing an increasing number of cases anecdotally hearing from people that actually having it is affecting them more seriously than they thought it was going to, perhaps more seriously than a couple of months ago. Meaning there's more discussion as well and thought about getting that next booster. When is it going to happen? So there've been some recent polling done on this, including from Angus Reid. We're going to talk about their latest one right now with Chachi Curl, who's the president of Angus Reid. Good morning, Chachi. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so interesting results here. You found there seems to be some appetite for getting another booster among Canadians, but not everybody. That's right. There's There are, are two paths. There's really sort of two groups emerging. There are folks who have had maybe one or two shots at the beginning of, uh, of when boosters uh, were first available, going back more than a year now, who haven't, uh, haven't been boosted but got those, those first couple shots, maybe because it was mandatory, maybe because they, they felt very strongly about the possibility of doing it at the time, but are now at a place where they're saying, you know what, uh, we've, we're, we're kind of done. We don't think we're going to have our, our boosters or keep up with a boosting schedule. And these folks are most likely to now think that uh, vaccines are not that effective when it comes to either preventing infection or preventing serious illness. Okay. On the other side of the spectrum, yeah. you've got people who have already had their third shot, in some cases already had their fourth shot, and they're all in. They're the ones really clamoring to say, look, open this up, uh, give, give us more vaccine in our arms because we are worried about what's coming. And uh, 
these folks are far more likely to say, uh, we absolutely think that vaccine can uh, prevent serious illness. Although when it comes to preventing infection, only two thirds of this group say that they think that vaccines are now uh, effective when it comes to preventing infection. But but there's they're still prepared to say, look, let's keep at it. Even if it prevents serious illness, it's worth it. Okay, now this also breaks down like by generational divide, doesn't it? Big age gap that is driving all of this. Whether people are worried about getting COVID, whether they are willing to be vaccinated over and over again uh, as as the, the months or the years go by, so much of this has to do with whether you are um, uh, over the age of 55 or under the age of 55, and then another big uh, a big divide is on gender. So men under the age of 55 far more likely to say um, not worried about uh, COVID anymore, not thinking about COVID anymore, not willing to be vaccinated for COVID anymore. Uh, women more broadly and men over the age of 55, much more on the other side of that spectrum. Interesting. So then who is willing to take a few precautions and is thinking about COVID? Again, you see a gender division on that front. So young people much more likely to be saying, not really thinking about it, not really worried about it. But uh, young women still more likely to say, look, if if it came to another uh, big declaration of a seventh wave and, and if we were asked, or if if it came down to maybe canceling plans, maybe not going to big events, maybe thinking twice before uh, heading to to a party or a social event, uh, it's women who are far more likely to say that those are things that they would be thinking twice about relative to men. Was there any breakdown according to where people lived in Canada? You do see higher numbers of people taking a more cautious approach in places like British Columbia in Ontario and in Atlantic Canada, uh, you know, in Alberta, hey, it's the week of the Calgary Stampede. People uh, in Alberta and Saskatchewan much more likely to be of the view that uh, they're 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 both emotionally done with COVID and also they they believe that clinically the worst is over. You could really tell that from the statement that you asked people to agree or disagree with, right? Like the statement was, I don't think about COVID-19 much anymore. And then you asked people to agree or disagree. That's right. And you see just the, the, the real differences between who's checked out of the conversation and who's checked in. Um, and, and again, big, big age divide on this front. Younger people aged 18 to 34, even those aged 18 to 26 far more likely to say they're not thinking about COVID that much anymore. Uh, and you see it also in terms of uh, the way we've asked people, how closely are you paying attention to the latest developments uh, around the, the latest variant and the fact that it does appear to be spreading quite rapidly? And we now have public health officials saying we could be into a seventh wave here, folks. We are into a seventh wave. Uh, significant numbers of people uh, just not paying attention to the issue anymore. Uh, we're going to have uh, data coming in the coming in in the next day or so that that uh, canvases the extent to which uh, people are are also reacting to the fact that they're maybe not getting those daily briefings or those daily case counts and getting the same uh, frequency and level of data that governments were publishing on a daily basis in the first years of the pandemic, 
you know, when governments tell you assess your own risk, manage your own risk, make your own decisions, uh, but we're not really prompted uh, in terms of being given a lot of info, I-, I wonder if that also has an impact. I wonder about that too. Well, I look forward to hearing more about this. Shachi, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the heat is back, and that means it is causing some wildfire problems. In fact, the Nahoman Creek wildfire, that one is near Lytton, now being classified as out of control. So what does that mean and what is going on? Joining us now is Nicole Bonnet, BC Fire Information Officer for the BC Wildfire Service. Nicole, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what is the situation of the Nahoman Creek wildfire right now? Uh, so we updated the size yesterday to 2,058 hectares. Uh, that change in size isn't attributed to any growth from yesterday, um, just from some growth that we saw on the afternoon of July 17th when the upslope west flank of the fire um, picked up in activity-wise and moved a little bit. Um, that growth was upslope away from the communities, though, so that's a positive thing. Okay, so how does that how does that get attacked now? So what what kind of crews are on site? What is happening? So we've got crews working on the south, east, and north flanks, and they're making really great progress out there. They've got some contingency lines in, and they're working to bolster those today. Um, along the east flank, which it kind of runs parallel to the Fraser River there, there's crews working in and around homes, continuing with hot spotting, uh, mop-up, and extinguishing any like hot spots and smokes that pop up throughout the day. Now that we're kind of moving into a bit of a warming and drying trend here and temperatures are going to pick up a little bit more than they had over the weekend, it's likely that some more of those hot spots will pop up in some of those areas. So they'll just keep patrolling for those. Um, And then we're also working quite actively in the Stein Valley walking path area at the mouth of the Stein Valley River um, and sort of in the valley bottom of the Stein Valley and Kukapna Heritage Park. And we're working with Lytton First Nation crews um, they've got also through Lytton First Nation, like a cultural values and archaeological specialist who's tied in with a structure protection team and a BC wildfire crew to help identify cultural values in the valley, in the valley bottom there um, and try and figure out the best ways to, to protect those. So we're working quite closely with Lytton First Nation and BC Parks uh, when it comes to the Stein Valley and Klikapnik Heritage Park. Okay, so then what do people need to know? Are there areas of concern that people need to stay away? Are there homes being threatened here? Uh, There are evacuation alerts and orders in through both Lytton First Nation and Thompson Nicola Regional District. Uh, The Stein Valley in Kukatmik Heritage Park is also closed through BC Parks. Um, And we do have a NOTAM in place. There have been unconfirmed reports of drones in the area, so we are just reminding everybody drones are not allowed above, like in the airspace above an active wildfire if somebody reports that they think they've seen one Uh, we do have to ground our aircraft so that really puts a significant halt to operations Um, and it it is also illegal so there is a fine that can be involved in that as well all right we need people to be on top of that nicole thank you so much for your time yeah you're welcome this is mornings with simi You know, we are definitely having a summer surge of COVID-19 and and people are thinking, well, wait a minute, what should I be doing here? Should I be taking up safety precautions again? Are people deciding that maybe they do want to get boosted after all, maybe this summer or even this fall? Well, let's talk more about this now with our contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. You know, I did not expect that we'd be even having this conversation in the summer. 
like several months ago, I think we were so hopeful that, hey, we're going to have a COVID-free summer. It's going to be easy. Everybody will be outside. It's not going to spread. That has not been the case. The virus is still very much out there. And you visibly see people are masking up again uh, and not even in places where they're being asked to. They're just voluntarily doing it so much. I found it really interesting to hear you talk to Shachi uh, Curl earlier from the Angus Reid poll uh, discussion where um, she mentioned that two in five among vaccinated say they're not sold on another shot. And what strikes me about that is that these are people who have wanted, who believed in the benefit of protection that vaccines provide, but now they just don't necessarily want another round of it. And I think that's because people, um, although they're having very different experiences with the latest BA4 and BA5 variants, like some people are getting um, a little sick, some people are getting very sick from it. I'm hearing a lot of people who got it saying that it's the sickest they ever remember being with anything like the cold or flu. And I think that, you know, people are starting to get wary of this idea that if we're going to be dealing with COVID-19 till the end of time, how many more cycles of boosters should everybody be going through? So I checked in with Protect Our Province, their grassroots coalition of uh, physicians, nurses, uh, health scientists, and policy specialists. And they are very critical of our province's handling of COVID-19. They just issued this open letter asking the health ministry to be more open with offering that booster. Um, they say that the province is gatekeeping too much, that it's only really encouraging people over 70. But in other provinces around Canada, they're making that age 50 to get uh, the next dose and even 18 and up in other places. So I asked Dr. Brenda Hardy, who's with Protect Our Province, about how concerned in general should we be with the seventh wave that we find ourselves in? Well, it's certainly concerning that what we're seeing is that with each um, successive variant, it becomes more and more able to evade our um, immunity that we have set up through our current immunization um, plan. So that is worrisome. But there certainly is hope on the horizon that we will come up with better vaccines. But mostly, I think what it tells us is that we should not be relying entirely on immunization for, for several reasons. One is that by not reducing the spread or transmission, we're actually causing this change, we're contributing to the changes in the variants, allowing them to circulate broadly is what causes the variants to be changing all the time. So if we were focusing on reducing transmission, um, then we would be doing more than just trying to search for the next vaccine that's going to you know, improve uh, the outcomes, but actually we would proactively be preventing or reducing the further changes in the, in the variants. So things like masks are pretty important for reducing transmission. Clean air regulations would be fantastic where uh, if we had uh, appropriate ventilation, filtration, and monitoring, especially of um, air spaces uh, that are public spaces, schools, hospitals, um, public areas. These are the things that could reduce the likelihood that we have to keep on dealing with um, each new variant that's evading immunity, like the one before. More than enough evidence that by reducing transmission with things like masks, we can definitely reduce the likelihood that a person's going to get COVID. Certainly even within a household, if COVID is in a household, people have been able to not get it um, within the same um, home, 
by taking those same steps, opening windows, using air filters, wearing high quality respirator masks. So it's not inevitable. There's no reason to give up. We can definitely um, make a difference. Okay, but the problem, I guess, here, though, is that there's stuff that people want to do, but they're really not getting enough, like, information, I think, in order to take some of those precautions, including people who want to get their maybe fourth uh, shot. No kidding. And people should be given that opportunity. And I am hearing folks say that they are beyond frustrated because our province keeps saying, hey, assess your risk. And then they're not giving us enough information or new data. Um, They're not even collecting all the kinds of data that they used to collect. And it's frustrating to see that they are doing that in other provinces. So why not BC? I think at this point, our province is being reluctant about saying that things are mandatory because they're very scared of pushback. And they're in a precarious position of having to always deal with optics, right? So they're withholding all this information, though. That's not fair. Like, we should be able to make, I think, decisions for our own selves, for our own families, uh, based upon the info. But we need that info. And then we also need access. Because, yes, lots of people are eager to get that extra dose now. And they want it and can't get it. And, and I know people are getting emails, and I know this because of a couple people who've received this email from the Provincial Vaccination Program saying, oh, yes, you're eligible to get your next booster this fall. And I just don't think that's very reassuring to some people who'd like, I'd like to have this now. Thanks. Yeah. And a lot of people I'm hearing are sitting tight now on plans that they wanted to do and that they would only feel comfortable doing if they were boosted, if they had that extra dose. And so now they're not experiencing their summer the way that they had hoped and expected to. I have people in my close circle who have caught uh, COVID in the last couple of months when they were on planes, they think, and international flights uh, in the last several months. And they got very, very, very ill. And now I'm talking to people who had plans to travel to be on planes, and they're saying uh, that they don't want to do it because they hear that that's where folks are catching it easily. Of course, like masks, even on a plane, I mean, but you're just so close to someone. Uh, so so it is risky. I think at this point, the I, well, I'm hoping that the province will change their tune and make it easier for people to get the next shot and also make it easier for for folks to access it. Uh, you have to be, I feel, so technologically savvy, have time on your hands and have English as your first language in order to be able to navigate the system to find out what's the latest with vaccines in BC. I think that is very, very true. Raji, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. So back in 2015, the BC government of the day decided they had to do something to try and save endangered woodland caribou. So they started the wolf call. Now that didn't sit well with everybody, but as of today, uh, about 1,400 wolves have been killed through what they call an aerial wolf reduction program. Now that is according to FOI documents obtained by an organization called Pacific Wild. And groups like Pacific Wild say they don't like the way 
the government has gone about this. They don't like the idea of an aerial wolf reduction program. So they did go to court over this. Uh, They argue that the caribou are actually dying because of habitat loss, not because of wolves. So all of this went to court. BC Supreme Court, though, recently denied the group's application to end the wolf call. So we're going to talk more about that now with Rebecca Breider, who's an animal rights lawyer and legal counsel for Pacific Wild. Thank you for being with us. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. So you disappointed with what happened? Absolutely. We're so disappointed with the court's decision. But let me just explain briefly the, the background to this. BC is a little bit different compared to other jurisdictions in Canada and, and around the world with the way they kill wolves. Here, it's like you, you introduced in your, in your comments, it's, it's an aerial wolf call. So basically what that means is that there are snipers from helicopters shooting wolves from uh, around the province and areas where the caribou numbers have declined compared to other provinces where like Alberta, they use poison called strychnine uh, places like Idaho, Montana, just further South from us, they, they hunt and trap them. So here it's uh, it, it's a little bit different compared to other jurisdictions. And again, they, they're killing them literally from helicopters. But what's really concerning is that, since the 1970s, there have biologists have been warning the government that uh, because they recognize that things like clear-cut logging in critical caribou habitat can have a devastating effect on their populations, they've been warning the government since the 1970s. We've seen warning signs of caribou decline since the early 2000s, yet now the government is essentially using wolves as a scapegoat to get out of a problem that they should have been dealing with for decades now. And the real culprit here, it's not the wolves, it's human disturbance in critical caribou habitat, like clear-cut logging, mining, and other resource extraction. So that's, that's kind of the, the way, the, the background, uh, I just wanted to set out right. for, for your listeners so that they understand where we're coming from. And w- what we did at Pacific Wild, and I'm counsel for them, is um, a couple of years ago, we looked at the legality. We looked at the way this is being done. Again, shooting wolves from helicopters. We looked at the legislation. We looked at the regulations. And at least the way the regulations were drafted at that time in 2020, and they haven't been changed in decades at that time, the regulations did not actually allow the killing of wolves from air. It allowed the killing of wolves by foot, you know, like going around hunting in the forest type of thing. But it did not allow the hunting of wolves by air. And we also said that it conflicted. This whole killing, using firearms from helicopters to kill wildlife was conflicting with our federal aviation regulations. Because as we all know, you're not allowed shooting, having access to a gun and not on an airplane and certainly not shooting from an airplane. So our, our judicial review uh, was based on those two things. One is that, um, it, well, just generally, let me just say that the regulations didn't allow the killing of wolves by air. And then in an interesting development, and I haven't seen this in litigation before, and at least in animal-related litigation, the government must have seen that we were onto something because after we filed for judicial review, in the course of litigation, coincidentally, the government changed its regulations to purportedly allow the killing of wolves by air, and they also obtained the required federal permits to allow them uh, to to use firearms uh, in aircraft to kill wolves. 
So we it, once we found that out, we still maintained that all, even though the government did that, we're, we still wanted to continue with the judicial review because in our view, the government did not, the BC government that is, did not go far enough in changing its regulations to make this a lawful kill. Okay, so is it the actual kill that is the problem here or the way it's being done? Well, both, both. But, but the actual judicial review was focusing only on the legality of it. I mean, it's no secret Pacific Wild and many other conservationists, environmentalists and animal advocates advocates do not want to see wolf killing go on, period, regardless of how it's done. But that's a separate issue. We were, we were focusing strictly on the legality of it. So we looked at the legislation, we looked at the regulations, and we maintained that the way that they were killing wolves, again, using uh, firearms from helicopters to kill wolves, was unlawful. That's what we focused okay. on. We didn't focus on the science and that. Okay, so then the application was denied here. So what happens next? Well, unfortunately, um, there's no indication that the government is actually going to listen to its residents, to who, the majority of whom don't want to see this go on. It looks like they are going to proceed, continue with this wolf killing, which is really it's heartbreaking because it's, there's, there's no science that is actually peer-reviewed, which means that it was reviewed by other scientists in, in credible fields, incredible journals, uh, that actually condone this. Okay, so do you go further with this? Like, what do you do now? No, right now we decided not to appeal the de- this decision and we're going to focus our options elsewhere. We're considering what those options are. Okay, so is this something that goes on elsewhere? You you mentioned how in the United States they do this differently. Are there better ways that you think the government should be approaching this? Uh, there's absolutely a better way to approach the conservation of caribou, and that's to actually, first of all, immediately stop all clear-cutting in critical caribou habitat and to focus essentially on human-caused deterioration of caribou habitat instead of using wolves as scapegoats. Okay, so that, that- that's really our that that's that's really at that's a heart of the at the heart of this issue. It, it wasn't part of the legality of it, so to speak, in in front of a judge in the courtroom. But behind the scenes, what science tells us and what what it's been telling us for decades now is that you cannot kill yourself out of a conservation program. You have to go to the root of the problem, and the root of the problem in this particular case is human-caused habitat deterioration, not wolves who have been able to live harmoniously with caribou since the beginning of time. Right. I guess the argument, though, for them is that, listen, they they are trying to protect the caribou. What's the better way, then, to protect the caribou? Well, if they're trying, and this is, it just boggles my mind. It really, both professionally and personally, I just don't understand. The government says, well, we got to do something, yet they are literally still issuing permits for clear-cutting in blocks and chunks of areas of critical caribou habitat. It makes no sense at all. They're still allowing road building. They're still allowing backcountry activities that we now know like uh, snowmobiling actually disturbs caribou. And it just, it doesn't make any sense. On the one hand, they say they care, but on the other hand, they're using a very short-term Band-Aid solution that doesn't even work. All right. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for your time on that today. 
Thank you very much, Simi. Appreciate that. Rebecca Breder is an animal rights lawyer, legal counsel for a group called Pacific Wild. They were taking the government to court, the BC government to court uh, over the um, wolf cult that started back in 2015 because they said they don't, the aerial wolf reduction program, they said there are better ways to do it than with that particular method. And they actually had their application uh, dismissed by BC Supreme Court. So now they're uh, really not sure what the next steps are going to be here. Meanwhile, the program does continue.